0: Hey everyone, my name is Yaro and you're listening to the Daydream of podcast. Thank you so much for joining me and kind of fresh out of a really beautiful conversation that I'm sharing right away, which to be honest, I don't usually do. And, and I also want to say sorry, I have a really big backlog of beautiful interviews that I have already recorded and I think my injury this year just kind of threw me off a little bit of my scheduling thing, but I promise they're all coming out over the next, say, eight to 10 weeks. And today I wanna share this one because my guest Jamie is offering um, a really cool workshop this Saturday about decolonizing food. And I thought some of you might wanna know about that. And also it's just nice actually to publish a conversation right away um, after the fact. So I hope you will enjoy that. I really love talking about food and the politics of food and healing and yeah it's just a really good chat um a content note about 20 minutes into this recording jamie is describing um some colonial violence so if that's not something that you want to listen to today um please give those eight minutes or about 20 minutes into 28 minutes in um yeah really take good care of yourself with that just a few notes from me. Um, the embodied business community is open for enrollment at the moment, which is really exciting. Um, it's 15 spots. Um, so it's either going to be open until they have filled or till 20 this 27th of April. Um, for those of you that don't know, this is a year-long program with um, group coaching. course which I recently re-recorded and we have themed workshops every month and co-working spaces so if you're building a small business or you're expanding your blog or you're wanting to lean more into your creativity in a way that's community supported then that might be cool and also in May I'm running a live version of my WordPress web design uh, course which I've re-recorded so again if you want to support around that and you want to do it together with other people I know that Creating a WordPress site can be daunting, but it's also exciting and empowering if you can do it, Um, then check that out in the show notes. And now I'm going to let you listen. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. Gosh, I feel so lucky, as you know, to just have such beautiful guests who share so many stories of healing and discovery and intention. And today isn't any different. I'm speaking to Jamie Pineda, who has so much to share around different bodywork modalities, how we relate to our ancestries, what the role of food in our everyday lives. And so I'm excited for this conversation. And I want to tell you also how I know Jamie. So he's a part of the embodied business community, um, which is currently open for enrollment, but probably won't be when this comes out. So forgot what I just said, (laughs) sorry. But Jamie, thank you so much for making time. It's really good to have you and to talk a little bit more about your work. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. I'm so excited. I'm excited too. So for those that don't know you, can you tell us a little bit more about what you do and what you're excited about at the moment?
1: Yeah, um, so my name is Jamie Panetta and I use he, him pronouns. Um, I'm currently located on Piscataway Territory, otherwise known as Baltimore, Maryland. Um, So that's on the east coast of the U.S. for folks who aren't familiar with U.S. geography. And I practice uh, multiple types of healing arts, mainly Chinese medicine, um, which includes acupuncture, Chinese herbs, Qigong, Moxibustion, and Tuina, which is a type of body work. And I also uh, practice Hilot Bina Bailan. So Hilot is from um, it's a traditional medicine from the Philippines, and it involves many different kinds of healing modalities, uh, such as body work. and it also involves herbs, um, involves divination. Like there's more of a spiritual aspect to it than what my Chinese medicine training has been, um, and uh, I I really like that is a fairly new part of my of my practice. So that I started uh, training for at the beginning of 2020. Um, and right now, because it's it's pandemic time, um, I haven't been doing treatments in person. So my work has been completely virtual, which has been very interesting. Um but we there's still so much of the medicine that's available that way, which is really great,
0: yeah, what a time to make a big shift in the work that you do. and I I've really love witnessing how you move things a lot uh, online and how um, yeah, how adaptable and creative you've been with that. So that also kind of really elegantly leads me to my next question, um which is heavy in a way. So you can take this anywhere you like, but I would love to hear what your experience of the pandemic has been like so far and how it's changed your work. I mean you already touched on that, but maybe there's more to say on that. So on just like
1: a very literal level, um, like a very material level, it like I basically like when the pandemic hit, lost all of my jobs. I was working in a few different clinics in D.C., and they closed down uh, for quarantine. And at that time, we didn't know if any of them were going to open up or when that was going to happen, uh, especially because a lot of the clinics I was working in were community style. So it was multiple people being treated in the same room um, indoors. So as you can imagine, that's that's a really hard thing to do safely uh, while we're in a pandemic. So... After those clinics shut down for a little bit, um, it just got me thinking, like, okay, like, I really need to pivot my work. Like, we don't know how long the pandemic's going to be happening. So, why not take this as an opportunity to reshape everything that I'm doing um, with a lot of longevity and adaptability in mind? Which um, led me to all of the online stuff that I've been doing, which includes one on one one-on-one work and also includes a lot of classes, um, mostly Qigong classes. So that's how it, so that's how it looks right now. Um, I'm also gonna be releasing a podcast later on in May or June uh, as a way to get folks more information about this medicine. Um, the information that I've been sharing through social media. It's like social media has been a really great way to do that, but I just feel like I can't get into that material as in depth um, in that particular format. Like it's a it's a great way to spark people's interest, but when we're talking about traditional medicine, um, a lot of times it really requires a a big paradigm shift, and it's hard to give that justice um, with little little posts on Instagram or Facebook. <laughs>
0: yeah absolutely that resonates for me so much and yeah as you know I love social media as well because I really want to have more headspace to listen I really used to love um taking a podcast on a long walk and I'm not walking at the moment but I'm just sitting in my garden listening to gosh maybe 20 podcast episodes a week and it's really my main medium and I'm so happy to hear that you're gonna publish one I'm super excited to to listen to that and share it with other people and I think it's just such a beautiful medium that gives conversations so much more depth. So yeah, that's amazing. And also, I feel the grief of not being able to have community clinics in the same way at the moment. I used to go to one in Brighton, and there was something so interesting and magical about sitting in a circle with needles in your body together with other people. So yeah. But yeah, um, right. I miss it. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Yeah. What are you wishing for in this transition as you're, as you're kind of thinking about what's next for you? Well,
1: um, what has been, I guess, like a hidden blessing in the pandemic is seeing how much everyone, uh, because they can't go out as much, they're going inward. So I'm seeing a lot more conversation about wellness. I'm seeing a lot more conversation about people connecting to ancestral medicine. Uh, My own community and myself and like, like greater community I think are realizing, oh, like our ancestors have survived a lot of shit. Like we all come from lines of people that have survived horrendous things. So there's wisdom in that, and there's stories in that, and there's learning to be had. Um, and we're also like realizing where our current um, health systems or ways of relating to medicine and wellness are not complete, or they're not serving us as fully as they could be. So, um, so I just I think that's really it's a, it's this is a really hard time, but I also see a lot of opportunities for transformation because we don't we don't have a choice, we have to do it.
0: Yeah, I was nodding along <laughs> a lot with that, that's so true. Um, how did you first get into the healing arts? I know um, such a beautiful thing to be able to do and I wonder how, yeah, what made you choose that path? So I came, i came to
1: the healing arts. I think like a lot of people come to healing arts, which is as a patient, so um, before I was doing healing work, I was working in nonprofits. Um, I had a my dream job at the time in my early 20s. Uh, I was working with a, a queer youth nonprofit group. And it just, it was something that like really spoke to my heart, but at the same time, the way that the job was set up was really draining for me. So I was really underpaid overworked, um, super stressed out. And so naturally I burned out. Um, I got really ill. I was like really struggling with my mental health and my physical health. So, and I didn't have health insurance at the time or a lot of money. So the, the only thing that was accessible to me was a community acupuncture clinic um, in Olympia, Washington. And uh, what I could do with my diet. So luckily I lived in an area where it was fairly easy to get organic food or to grow your own food. Um, like I, at the time was like volunteering at the co-op so that I could get discounts on, on the food and the the fresh produce there. Um, I lived in a house that had access to a little bit of land. So I was able to grow some food there as well. Um, I also like would trade with folks too. So. I just, you know, made a commitment to myself to access whatever medicine that I had available to me and to get better. And that, um, that really pivoted my relationship to the work that I wanted to do. So starting out as an organizer and just realizing that that particular type of activism was not healthy for me in, during that time and in the way that I'm engaging in it. Um, not to say that, that just because it's organizing or activism that it's unhealthy. Um, just the way that I was, I was involved in it uh, was toxic to me. So having to, to pivot around that and to do a lot of soul searching um, to see what really sparked my interest and where I felt I could be of service to my communities, in a way that wasn't draining and was actually fulfilling to me, so that that's what brought me to going to acupuncture school. And originally, I actually wanted to learn Filipino uh, traditional medicine first, just because that's um, that's my main heritage. My family's Tagalog, and we also have some um, Chinese Filipino ancestry as well. But living in diaspora in the U.S. Um, and also not being super fluent in Tagalog, made it really, really hard to find teachers or to find programs that I could get to without um, traveling to the Philippines, which at the time I could not afford. Um, So acupuncture and Chinese medicine was sort of like the closest thing that I could get to that I felt like would still be appropriate for me to participate in. Uh, So that's that's how i how i chose chinese medicine Um, and i also saw a lot of potential there for being able to treat larger groups of people uh, to make it more financially accessible especially since my first introduction to acupuncture was in a community clinic
0: yeah that's so beautiful and yeah gosh i yeah i love everything that you shared there about this commitment you made to yourself and how you found out found all these different ways of um moving towards healing and I think yeah food is such a big part of that and also it's so fraught and so difficult coming out of diet culture and trying to make those shifts I think for me it's always required real courage and like a real commitment to stay with myself rather than what's out there and what messages I've been hearing so I'm excited that you're talking about food and that you're finding ways of sharing that in a really, in a really p- empowering and community-based way. Um, before interviewing you, I just checked out your blog and was interested about what you were writing um, about at the moment. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about stinky food?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love I love talking about stinky food. <laughs> so, food, like as you mentioned, it's. It's a huge topic. It's very complex. There's a lot of there's a lot of emotion, a lot of stories, a lot of history and culture attached to food, right? So, um, food being one of my first medicines, like one of the the first ways that I understood like receiving nutrition um, and healing, it's for me more than a physical healing. So, as I mentioned before, like, my, my family's Tagalog, and when I was living in Olympia, Washington, it was, like, the demographics there were, were very, very white. Like, it was the, the first place I'd lived. Um, I grew up in Southern California, which is, is like, very culturally, uh, racially diverse, and when I moved to Washington State, um, it was a lot less so. So most of my peers, um, the school that I went to for college was very white. And so it was a big disconnection for me to feel, to be living in that culture, away from my family, away from things that I was familiar to. So food um, was a way to reconnect with that part of myself, too. So that was, yeah, like that was that was like the most natural way for me to do it because in Filipino culture like food is a it's a huge deal like if you've ever been to a Filipino house or like a Filipino party like people are um almost <laughs> at a harassment level following guests around trying to feed them and it's it's beautiful and sometimes annoying but I I love it it's like also just very much a part of how I walk in the world so I use food in a much deeper way than just physical nutrition. I use it to connect to my ancestors. I use it, um, frankly, I just use it, I use it for magic all the time. So it's very, it's a very spiritual thing for me. Um, It's an opportunity to have medicine every time you eat. And that's to me a really, um, that's a really important, it's a really important thing to have medicine that is like in our lives in such an integrated way. It's not just you you take a pill, um, and and it just like whatever you're dealing with goes away. It's like you're you're very involved in it. Like the process of cooking, the process of like growing your own food, the process of sharing food with other people, uh, are all, in my opinion, opportunities for it to be
0: therapeutic. Yes, absolutely. And I just love the care that goes into that, and also the relationship sometimes that we have or can nurture to plants when we're growing our own food I think there's so much to learn from that I have been growing little seedlings on my windowsill this spring um, and I planted some of them out too soon so I think they're not going to make it and it's heartbreaking and it's so nice to have that relationship oh, no. <laughs> um, and to just yeah see how that evolves and also I think you're totally right there's so much magic in food and ritual and I think it's also a really beautiful access point to work with our inner child in a way when there's younger parts of ourselves that feel just disconnected or neglected I think I just love making my favorite childhood foods for comfort for myself and just be like yeah you know these things are still available even if I haven't seen my family in over a year and there's still a connection so that's really cool
1: totally
0: um I
1: neglected to to mention the stinky part of that whole <laughs> yeah. blog, which is probably like the most interesting, sexy part. <laughs> so, so the reason I I titled it "stinky food" is because for me, um, reclaiming my a relationship with food that was not shame based around culture. Like, I'm not I'm not talking about um, disordered eating. I'm talking about shame from uh, xenophobia. So as a kid, I was most definitely bullied for bringing lunches to school that were not like a sandwich and an apple and chocolate milk. Like sometimes I would get rice and stinky fish and stuff that um, as a little kid with other little kids was deemed weird or undesirable or, um, you know, like just a, an excuse to, to pick on someone who is a little bit different. So it's, like eating stinky food to me. Um, it's a way to to reclaim that and to find something like beautiful and pleasurable and something I can be proud in. Um, and it's also a way to take up take up space in um, white culture. And by white culture, it's it's even greater than um, when I'm interacting with white folks. It's like white culture in the us like permeates everything. we do. So it's anyone who, anyone who's living in white culture can still act in ways that are upholding those standards. Um, So stinky food is like a way for me to, to really like have a dialogue with my own internalized racism. It's to have a dialogue with how do I decolonize my mind and my taste buds and my way that I experience pleasure um, and the way that I relate to to the ways that my, my ancestors have nourished themselves.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm sorry that happened to you when you were a kid. And um, yeah, that also brings me beautifully next to my next question, which is, um, what does it mean for you to decolonize your practices and both what does that look like and what does that feel like for you right now? So um, specifically with practicing
1: Helot, it, it's a big deal, I think, to have people practicing it openly um, and to have those practices being brought into the diaspora. So um, I want to give a little content warning because I'm going to talk about colonial violence. Um, so maybe, Yara, when you when you edit it, you can like, just tell folks like when in the podcast it happens
0: yeah yeah of course yes
1: um so when the spanish colonizers came to the philippines one of the things that they they did was to murder the babaylan so babaylan um they have different names in different groups in the philippines sometimes it's Catalonan, sometimes it's mumbaki so these were um spiritual, these were leaders in the community that uh, held spiritual knowledge, uh, practiced healing work, um, did ceremonies for people. Uh, they were mostly women and folks that um, like might be considered non-binary today. So people who were um, not uh, considering themselves or living in ways that were strictly male or female in that, in that binary. So when the Spanish came, they recognized um, the leadership of these people and that that would they they like, um, you know, like deemed them enemies of, of the Catholic church. And so they were killed and not only were they killed the, the power of these Babylon um, scared the Spanish so much that they dismembered them after they killed them and fed them to the crocodiles because they were afraid that with their powers they would resurrect themselves and seek revenge. So um, with with the, the murdering of the Babaylan um, who were like actively resistant to Spanish colonization, we lost a lot of our Healing knowledge. We lost a lot of cultural knowledge. Um, And the Spanish, I mean, the Spanish knew what they were doing, right? Like, this is part of genocide. Um, And a lot of that information had to go underground so that people were practicing in secret, or it had to syncretize with Catholic beliefs. So instead of, um, for example, worshiping um, indigenous deities or spiritual figures, that focus gets diverted to saint worship um, or worship of the Virgin Mary. So, to like you know centuries later, be practicing this medicine um, or at least parts of it, to me is a it's a really big deal. It's a it's a real mark of the resilience of these practices and the resilience of my ancestors to keep some of these things alive. Um, I don't, I don't personally, uh, identify as a Babailan and neither do my teachers, um, because we're not, we weren't brought up with those particular initiations in that particular cultural context. Um, but we do consider ourselves, uh, being a Babylon, which is like people who are like walking the path of the Babylon. So we are, we are fulfilling some of those roles, learning some of that knowledge. So it's more of an a, adjacent path. Rather than than claiming that particular role, um, so to me, like just just being able to practice this, practice it openly, bring some of that medicine to people um, in diaspora, like living outside of the Philippines, is it's huge, um, and uh, like like I'm still like I I did my training and my initiation um, back in January of 2020 with, uh, I actually flew out to the Philippines with a friend of mine who also went through the same school as I did, which is the Hilo Academy of uh, Bina Bailan. And we did that as um, a very big collective effort. So neither of us, like we, we fundraised for like a whole year, because um, neither of us could afford it on our own. and. It was just really beautiful to see how much people really wanted and desired and really wanted to honor this medicine. Um, So we had a ton of donations that were able to cover our trip, um, that were able to provide for us um, lost wages for when we had to take off of work because we were there for almost a month. I was there for about three weeks. Um, So that's. Yeah, like that whole process has been um, really like where a lot of my focus around decolonizing medicine is has come from in the last couple of years, and on top of that, like Chinese medicine in the U.S. I mean, that's a that's a whole other that's a whole other huge topic where um, how it looks in practice, like is most of the people who practice in the U.S. are white. Most of the folks who um, are able to access those, that type of healing are also white. So I see that as very problematic that um, people within the Asian communities are not able to access their own ancestral medicine a lot of times. Uh, So a lot of my, how I've practiced over the years has been in relationship to that. Like how can this actually be something for people within that community that it's from? How can they access that? How can they like go to school to be able to practice something that is theirs? And I see, I see this medicine practice a lot without that reciprocity. So it is, it is an open system. Like you don't have to be Chinese or Japanese to study uh, this medicine, but like, I still think that reciprocity is really important. Like there needs to be engagement with that community. Um, like I haven't like with the with the uh like ongoing violence against folks of color and like the ongoing violence specifically against like folks in the Asian community in the US. Like we're seeing elders murdered. There was um a month ago, like those women murdered in um Atlanta by a white shooter. Uh, like it's like our our, these communities our communities need a lot of healing right now like where are the acupuncture professionals who are not from that community like how are they why isn't there a collective effort to organize in solidarity that I mean I said a lot because I have a lot of feelings about it and hopefully it was coherent enough for people to to, um, understand what I'm talking about
0: yes absolutely it was coherent and important to say and i'm really grateful you said it so thank you for giving us more context and sharing your story and the training you've done and your experience and yeah thank you so much and i'm wondering if people are listening to this and they um feel a longing for reconnection with their own ancestry as well what is um what do what do you recommend as a starting point or what do you wish more people knew?
1: I really love that question. Um, I think that everyone should get in touch with with their ancestors. And by ancestors, I mean more like, you know, like you're, you're sure, get in touch with your ancestors, if you can, of your genetic lineage. But also like your ancestors are everyone who came before you that is like influencing you now. So your ancestors, like your queer elders, um, the land that you're living on, the plants that you are like in relationship with um, doesn't have to be human ancestors necessarily. And what that to me, what that does, it provides an opportunity to understand what your inheritance is. And inheritance, you can, you can inherit a lot of different things. Like you can inherit privilege. You can also inherit, like, generational trauma. Um, You can inherit knowledge. You can inherit other relationships. So this gives you an idea of how to locate yourself in relationship to other people, to understand, like, okay, like, if you benefit from colonization, um, what does that look like? What happened there? Like, how can you... Connect to that process where you're actually providing reparations. Even for myself, like as a person who's like brown, um, living in diaspora, I still have to have accountability for the fact that my family are settlers on Turtle Islands on on the U.S. Like we are not indigenous to here. Um, Like the pressures of colonization creating poverty in the Philippines you know like did force my parents to to migrate to emigrate or not just my parents like my whole family had to immigrate from Philippines but like that's at expense of the indigenous indigenous folks in the U.S. so understanding the complexity of different kinds of relationships different re, um, re- different kinds of relationships to colonization that exist even within my own lineage and within my own experience, I think is really important. Because um, it informs the way that I am interacting with people. It informs the way that I shape my work. Um, it, it informs the way that I think of accountability.
0: Yeah. That makes sense and and it's a lot right like I it's a lot I have so much respect for how much work this is and how deep it goes and how much it can bring up and I wonder in your own um self and community care practices and in what you do day to day is there anything that you feel you want to share that's nourishing to you?
1: hmm um well <laughs> the first thing is is maybe obviously food. <laughs> I think food is a great way to start. Uh, like even if you're not a good cook, like look at look at the food that you that you do eat. Where did those ingredients come from? That's one of my favorite exercises is to examine where they where they originated from. So if you're like drinking your pumpkin spice latte, where did that cinnam- where was cinnamon grown? where did it originally come from? Where did the like coffee beans come from? You know, like we start seeing the relationship of how food travels to us. Um, What are the stories there? Like, have you ever read about the sugar trade? Have you read about the spice trade? Like, how has that shaped us? So starting with food um, is an important thing. Looking at the ingredients, trying to um connect in in through like cooking traditional foods, I think is also a really great thing. Um, if food is not so much a thing, look at the art from your cultures. Listen to the music. like what is it what is it saying to you? Like I know that um, looking back into your ancestry and into your fam- like one's family can can be really loaded. Like some of our ancestors were not nice. You know, like some of our family is not family that um, would be safe to interact with. So you can go you can go beyond that. Like you don't have to um, interact with with things that you don't feel comfortable with because they're unsafe. Um, but if it does feel uncomfortable and you feel safe, I think it's important to think about that. And think about why it's uncomfortable. Why is it hard? Like I used to, as a kid, never want to eat Filipino food. I didn't ever want to speak Tagalog, which is why I lost it. Um, and it wasn't until I was an adult that I understood that that was, um, well, first I, I was ashamed that I had been ashamed. Um, and then later I realized that that was all a function of colonization. Like conditioning my brain um, to not want these things. Because I was living in a context where um, accessing my cultural norms was not safe. So my relationship to it now is that that was actually a survival mechanism. And now that I'm in a much safer place and I have much more control over my environment, um, I can. Re- it's safer for me to reclaim that.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you shared so much already. I wonder if there's anything... Um, that maybe you feel like you didn't get to talk about yet that you also want to um, let people know about?
1: Uh, yeah, this t- these topics are so huge. And like, where do I even start sometimes?
0: <laughs> I know.
1: <laughs> right? Um, but
0: food is always a good place to start.
1: Food is always a good place. I love food. I, like, I would encourage people who are... Um, Engaging in decolonizing work to also, you know, like inform themselves and build relationships to, like, the indigeneity of where they're at. So, what are the, what does the organizing look like for the indigenous peoples of where you live? And can you, like, how can you be supportive of that in whatever capacity is available to you? Um, Like, I did a land acknowledgement earlier uh, of. The fact that I am on Piscataway territory and land acknowledgments are great and um, that's a beginning point like the acknowledgement needs to also uh, generate action and generate relationship building. so so being connected to to indigenous struggles all over the world um, or wherever you're at actually like wh- whatever's happening locally I think is a great way to start um, if it feels Difficult to to start that or to to make contact in that way Um, You can also start with just tending to the nature of where you live Even if you live in the city, there's still nature there. There There's still Earth underneath that concrete. There's still air. There's still water that's coming to you Um, Tending to nature tending to an earth that we are sharing I think is another way to um, have a relationship with decolonization.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love the simplicity of that. I think sometimes you can just like pick some trash, you know? Yeah. That, that's a really good place to start. Um, together with food and just being present with where we are and looking around ourselves and seeing what's already there. I think um we as white people so often center ourselves and think we need to initiate some kind of action when when that's true of course sometimes that is appropriate but so often there's already so much that we can just um support um in a much more um integrated and um fair way yeah thank you um what are you currently offering and where can people find you
1: so um the next project that i have coming up well one of them is like it's going to start probably before the before this podcast episode comes out, but I am doing a talk on the 17th called up Decolonizing Medicine Through Food," and um, I love doing that talk. And it's it is what what the title is. We're just going to be talking about food and and ways to um, decolonize our diet, uh, decolonize medicine through our diet, uh, and that. Leads into a much larger program called Kitchen Magic, and that program is really like, how do we put that into action? And it's it's built around having a cohort of folks where we're learning how to engage in in magic through through our kitchens. And to me, magic is about um, transformation. It's about relationships, uh, and it's about empowerment and getting connected to. Um, our spirituality by by connection to our ancestors. And for for my particular um, lineage, we practice atan, which is um offering. And a lot of those offerings are food. So that is a way for us for us to connect. And I um and that particular course is for set aside for a BICOT cohort. So black and indigenous people of color. Um, simply because like a lot of us um, have experienced our stinky food moments have experienced um, alienation or bullying uh, um, because of, of the way that we eat or the way that uh, we live our, our culture. So beyond that, I am offering one-on-one sessions of virtual helot, which is um, what I'm doing online is, is I'm not just so much doing the body work because that's, doesn't really make sense for me to do online but i'm doing more um divination work for folks on -on one-on-one with HELOT. and i'm also practicing chinese medicine online as well um right now i'm only licensed in the dc and maryland areas so uh that for that particular modality that i can only see for folks who are residents of those areas um but those sessions are really tailored to uh, whatever whatever the client wants to work on and what feels easy to them. So it might be we're doing herbs, um, herbal consultations. We might be doing qigong, which is um, a movement, a type of movement medicine. Um, we might be doing lifestyle medicine. So looking at like your habits around sleep or your habits around like when you eat or exercise or just how you go about your day. There's Ton, like Chinese medicine is so good at preventative medicine and integrating all of that into our daily lifestyle um and then I also will sometimes prescribe like self-massage or or acupressure for folks so kind of depends on what people want to work on um, for that
0: mm-hmm. cool um we'll link to that in the show notes and yes oh my god I just want to just highlight again what you said. I think there's um so much preventative beauty in Chinese medicine. I had a little bit of support around healing my broken leg and I was just blown away with how beautiful it was to really be listened to and to have this like full, full body, full being intake where we really looked at all these different aspects of my life and especially in the sharp comparison of this experience I had in hospital. Um which was what I needed at the time, you know, I needed to, I needed surgery, I guess. Um, and, and it was so beautiful to be able to have that additional support as well. So I really wish that for everyone. I wish that was, um, that was just a part that everyone could access. And I'm excited that you're offering that and you have found such beautiful ways of making that more accessible. So, yeah, I'm excited for people to check that out. Jamie thank you so so much for everything you shared today. I'm really excited to bring this out and um yeah, thank you. I'm really really grateful. Thank you. I'm so glad that you mentioned
1: your experience after you broke your leg because it's that's the paradigm shift that I'm talking about where we ask about we ask questions about the whole person. And it's not like you're not just the injury, right? Like yeah. they probably asked you about your sleep, like what how you poop. You know, like all these things that seem unrelated to a particular condition, but really it's like, it's all, it's all connected.
0: Yes, I can confirm my poop was discussed in depth and it was really <laughs> <laughs> important. Yeah, I'm so Poop is,
1: has a lot of information.
0: It does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially if you're coming off of um pain medication, it's so, intense. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Jamie. This was amazing, <laughs>
1: yeah.